Question 1 of Summa Theologica Tertia Pars, Treatise on the Saviour, Part 2, Question 1, Articles 4 through 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Tertia Pars, Treatise on the Saviour by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 1 of Summa Theologica Tertia Pars, Part 2, Question 1, Articles 4 through 6. Fourth Article. Whether God became incarnate in order to take away actual sin, rather than to take away original sin. Objection 1. It would seem that God became incarnate as a remedy for actual sins rather than for original sin. For the more grievous the sin, the more it runs counter to man's salvation, for which God became incarnate. But actual sin is more grievous than original sin, for the lightest punishment is due to original sin, as Augustine says in Against Julian 5.11. Therefore, the incarnation of Christ is chiefly directed to taking away actual sins. Objection to further, pain of sense is not due to original sin, but merely pain of loss, as has been shown above in the Pars Prima Secundae, question 87, article 5. But Christ came to suffer the pain of sense on the cross in satisfaction for sins, and not the pain of loss, for he had no defect of either the beatific vision or fruition. Therefore, he came in order to take away actual sin rather than original sin. Objection 3. Further, as Chrysostom says in On the Heart's Contrition 2.3, This must be of the mind of the faithful servant, to account the benefits of his Lord, which have been bestowed on all alike, as though they were bestowed on himself alone. For as if, speaking of himself alone, Paul writes to the Galatians, 2.20, Christ loved me and delivered himself for me. But our individual sins are actual sins, for original sin is the common sin. Therefore, we ought to have this conviction so as to believe that he has come chiefly for actual sins. On the contrary, it is written in John 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who taketh away the sins of the world. I answer that, it is certain that Christ came into this world not only to take away that sin which is handed on originally to posterity, but also in order to take away all sins subsequently added to it. Not that all are taken away, and this is from men's fault, inasmuch as they do not adhere to Christ, according to John 3.19, The light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light. But because he offered what was sufficient for blotting out all sins, Hence it is written, in Romans 5, verses 15 and 16, But not as the offense, so also the gift. 
for judgment indeed was by one unto condemnation, but grace is of many offenses unto justification. Moreover, the more grievous the sin, the more particularly did Christ come to blot it out. But greater is said in two ways. In one way, intensively, as a more intense whiteness is said to be greater, and in this way actual sin is greater than original sin, for it has more of the nature of voluntary, as has been shown in the Pars Prima Secundae, question 81, article 1. In another way, a thing is said to be greater extensively, as whiteness on a greater surface is said to be greater, and in this way original sin, whereby the whole human race is infected, is greater than any actual sin which is proper to one person. And in this respect, Christ came principally to take away original sin, inasmuch as the good of the race is a more divine thing than the good of an individual, as is said in Ethics 1.2. Reply to Objection 1. This reason looks to the intensive greatness of sin. Reply to Objection 2. In the future award, the pain of sense will not be meted out to original sin. Yet the penalties, such as hunger, thirst, death, and the like, which we suffer sensibly in this life, flow from original sin. And hence Christ, in order to satisfy fully for original sin, wished to suffer sensible pain, that he might consume death and the like in himself. Reply to Objection 3. Chrysostom says, in On the Heart's Contrition 2.6, The Apostle used these words, not as if wishing to diminish Christ's gifts, ample as they are, and spreading throughout the whole world, but that he might account himself alone the occasion of them. For what does it matter that they are given to others, if what are given to you are as complete and perfect as if none of them were given to another than yourself. And hence, although a man ought to account Christ's gifts as given to himself, yet he ought not to consider them not to be given to others. And thus we do not exclude that he came to wipe away the sin of the whole nature rather than the sin of one person but the sin of the nature is as perfectly healed in each one as if it were healed in him alone. Hence, on account of the union of charity, what is vouchsafed to all ought to be accounted his own by each one. Fifth article. Whether it was fitting that God should become incarnate in the beginning of the human race. Objection 1. It would seem that it was fitting that God should become incarnate in the beginning of the human race. For the work of the Incarnation sprang from the immensity of divine charity, according to Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his exceeding charity wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together in Christ. But charity does not tarry in bringing assistance to a friend who is suffering need, according to Proverbs 3.28.
say not to thy friend, Go, and come again, and to-morrow I will give to thee, when thou canst give at present. Therefore God ought not to have put off the work of the Incarnation, but ought thereby to have brought relief to the human race from the beginning. Objection to Further, it is written in First Timothy one fifteen, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. But more would have been saved had God become incarnate at the beginning of the human race, for in the various centuries very many, through not knowing God, perished in their sin. Therefore, it was fitting that God should become incarnate at the beginning of the human race. Objection 3. Further, the work of grace is not less orderly than the work of nature. But nature takes its rise with the more perfect, as Boethius says in On the Consolation of Philosophy 3. Therefore, the work of Christ ought to have been perfect from the beginning. But in the work of the Incarnation, we see the perfection of grace, according to John 1.14. The word was made flesh. And afterwards it is added, Full of grace and truth. Therefore, Christ ought to have become incarnate at the beginning of the human race. On the contrary, it is written in Galatians 4.4, 4, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, upon which a gloss says that the fullness of the time is when it was decreed by God, the Father, to send his Son. But God decreed everything by his wisdom. Therefore, God became incarnate at the most fitting time, and it was not fitting that God should become incarnate at the beginning of the human race. I answer that, since the work of the Incarnation is principally ordained to the restoration of the human race by blotting out sin, it is manifest that it was not fitting for God to become incarnate at the beginning of the human race before sin. For medicine is given only to the sick. Hence our Lord himself says in Matthew 9 verses 12 and 13, they that are in health need not a physician, but they that are ill. For I am not come to call the just, but sinners. Nor was it fitting that God should become incarnate immediately after sin. First, on account of the manner of man's sin, which had come of pride. Hence man was to be liberated in such a manner that he might be humbled, and see how he stood in need of a deliverer. Hence on the words in Galatians 3.19, being ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator, a gloss says, With great wisdom was it so ordered that the Son of Man should not be sent immediately after man's fall. For first of all, God left man under the natural law, with the freedom of his will, in order that he might know his natural strength. And when he failed in it, he received the law. Whereupon, by the fault, not of the law, 
but of his nature, the disease gained strength, so that having recognized his infirmity, he might cry out for a physician, and beseech the aid of grace. Secondly, on account of the order of furtherance in good, whereby we proceed from imperfection to perfection. Hence the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 46 and 47, Yet that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, afterwards that which is spiritual. The first man was of the earth, earthy, the second man from heaven, heavenly. Thirdly, on account of the dignity of the incarnate word, for on the words, in Galatians 4.4, 4, But when the fullness of time was come, a gloss says, The greater the judge who was coming, the more numerous was the band of heralds who ought to have preceded him. Fourthly, lest the fervor of faith should cool by the length of time, for the charity of many will grow cold at the end of the world. Hence, in Luke 18, verse 8, it is written, But yet the Son of Man, when he cometh, shall he find, think you, faith on earth? Reply to Objection 1. Charity does not put off bringing assistance to a friend, always bearing in mind the circumstances as well as the state of persons. For if the physician were to give the medicine at the very outset of the ailment, it would do less good and would hurt rather than benefit. Hence the Lord did not bestow upon the human race the remedy of the Incarnation in the beginning, lest they should despise it through pride if they did not already recognize their disease. Reply to Objection 2 Augustine replies to this in his letter 102, on six questions of the pagans, question two, that Christ wished to appear to man and to have his doctrine preached to them, when and where he knew those were who would believe in him. But in such times and places as his gospel was not preached, he foresaw that not all, indeed, but many, would so bear themselves towards his preaching as not to believe in his corporeal presence, even were he to raise from the dead. But the same Augustine, taking exception to this reply in his book, on Perseverance 9, says, How can we say the inhabitants of Tyre and Sidon would not believe when such great wonders were wrought in their midst, or would not have believed had they been wrought, when God himself bears witness that they would have done penance with great humility if these signs of divine power had been wrought in their midst. And he adds in answer, Hence, as the Apostle says in Romans 9.16, It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy, who succors whom he will of those who, as he foresaw, would believe in his miracles if wrought amongst them, while others he succors not, having judged them in his predestination secretly yet justly. Therefore let us unshrinkingly believe his mercy to be with those who are set free, and his truth with those who are condemned, 
Reply to Objection 3. Perfection is prior to imperfection, both in time and nature, in things that are different. For what brings others to perfection must itself be perfect. But in one and the same, imperfection is prior in time, though posterior in nature. And thus, the eternal perfection of God precedes in duration the imperfection of human nature. But the latter's ultimate perfection, in union with God, follows. Sixth article. Whether the Incarnation ought to have been put off till the end of the world. Objection 1. It would seem that the work of the Incarnation ought to have been put off till the end of the world. For it is written in Psalm 91, verse 11, My old age in plentiful mercy, that is, in the last days, as a gloss says. But the time of the Incarnation is especially the time of mercy, according to Psalm 101, verse 14, For it is time to have mercy on it. Therefore, the Incarnation ought to have been put off till the end of the world. Objection to, further, as has been said in Article 5, Third Reply, in the same subject, perfection is subsequent in time to imperfection. Therefore, what is most perfect ought to be the very last in time. But the highest perfection of human nature is in the union with the Word, because in Christ it hath pleased the Father that all the fullness of the Godhead should dwell, as the Apostle says in Colossians 1.19 and in Colossians 2.9. Therefore, the Incarnation ought to have been put off till the end of the world. Objection 3 further. What can be done by one ought not to be done by two. But the one coming of Christ at the end of the world was sufficient for the salvation of human nature. Therefore, it was not necessary for him to come beforehand in his incarnation. And hence the incarnation ought to have been put off till the end of the world. On the contrary, it is written in Habakkuk 3.2. In the midst of the years thou shalt make it known. Therefore, the mystery of the Incarnation, which was made known to the world, ought not to have been put off till the end of the world. I answer that, as it was not fitting that God should become incarnate at the beginning of the world, so also it was not fitting that the Incarnation should be put off till the end of the world. And this is shown first from the union of the divine and human nature. For as it has been said in Article 5, Third Reply, perfection precedes imperfection in time in one way, and contrariwise in another way imperfection precedes perfection. For in that which is made perfect from being imperfect, imperfection precedes perfection in time, whereas in that which is the efficient cause of perfection, 
perfection precedes imperfection in time. Now in the work of the Incarnation both concur. For by the Incarnation human nature is raised to its highest perfection, and in this way it was not becoming that the Incarnation should take place at the beginning of the human race. And the word incarnate is the efficient cause of the perfection of human nature, according to John 1.16, Of his fullness we have all received. And hence the work of the Incarnation ought not to have been put off till the end of the world. But the perfection of glory, to which the human nature is to be finally raised by the word incarnate, will be at the end of the world. Secondly, from the effect of man's salvation. For, as is said in Questions on the Old and New Testament, question 83, it is in the power of the giver to have pity when, or as much as, he wills. Hence he came when he knew it was fitting to succor, and when his boons would be welcome. For when by the feebleness of the human race men's knowledge of God began to grow dim and their morals lax, he was pleased to choose Abraham as a standard of the restored knowledge of God and of holy living. And later on, when reverence grew weaker, he gave the law to Moses in writing, and because the Gentiles despised it, and would not take it upon themselves, and they who received it would not keep it, being touched with pity, God sent his Son to grant to all remission of their sin, and to offer them, justified, to God the Father. But if this remedy had been put off till the end of the world, all knowledge and reverence of God, and all uprightness of morals, would have been swept away from the earth. Thirdly, this appears fitting to the manifestation of the divine power, which has saved men in several ways, not only by faith in some future thing, but also by faith in something present and past. Reply to Objection 1. This gloss has in view the mercy of God which leads us to glory. Nevertheless, if it is referred to the mercy shown the human race by the incarnation of Christ, we must reflect that, as Augustine says in his Retractions 1, the time of the incarnation may be compared to the youth of the human race. On account of the strength and fervor of faith which works by charity. And to old age, that is, the sixth age, on account of the number of centuries, for Christ came in the sixth age. And although youth and old age cannot be put together in a body, yet they can be together in a soul, the former on account of quickness, the latter on account of gravity. And hence Augustine says elsewhere, in his 83 questions, question 44, that it was not becoming that the master by whose imitation the human race was to be formed to the highest virtue should come from heaven save in the time of youth. But in another work, in his On Genesis against the Manichaeans, 123, he says that Christ came in the sixth age, that is, in the old age of the human race. 
Reply to Objection 2. The work of the Incarnation is to be viewed not as merely the terminus of a movement from imperfection to perfection, but also as a principle of perfection to human nature, as has been said. Reply to Objection 3. As Chrysostom says on John 3.11, For God sent not his Son into the world to judge the world, as he mentions in his homily 28. There are two comings of Christ, the first for the remission of sins, the second to judge the world. For if he had not done so, all would have perished together, since all have sinned and need the glory of God. Hence it is plain that he ought not to have put off the coming in mercy till the end of the world. End of question one. Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.